You can turn to Jonah. That's where we're going to be. And the great thing about Jonah is you can kind of just see it all on one page or two, probably, unless you have a giant-sized Bible. Jonah's where we're going to be, particularly, or particularly in chapter 3. Let's pray. We'll get into it. Lord, we love you. God, I pray that your word would illuminate clearly your heart and your character and your voice to us tonight. I pray that this message would be one we need to hear. I pray we receive it. And I pray, God, that you take us on a journey to discovering who you are and what your heart is. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. In your name, amen. All right, I'm going to start with a scenario. And this is a short message, so I'm just going to jump right into the intense stuff. Um, I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine God comes to you in the middle of the night with a vision and a dream. Sounds good, right? We like that idea, right? Vision and dream. Okay. God says to you, I have a mission for you. And you say, this is amazing. God has appeared to me in a dream. What, Lord? What is my mission? God says, I want you to go across the world to visit a very specific group of people. Now, how many people you hear this and you get excited already? You know, like any, any show of hands? Like, does anyone like missions trips? You like going on adventures? You like doing things? Okay, a few of you. Awesome. Well, just, to, just imagine for the sake of the story, you're that type of person who likes being adventurous. So you're thinking, who, Lord? Who are these people you want me to visit? Is it orphans in Mexico? Is it tribes in Africa? Is it little skater kids over in Ireland? What, what is it? Who are the people that you want me to reach out to you? And then God responds and he says, ISIS. Right. Like, whoa. So you think, what, Lord? No, really? And he, he says, yes, in this hypothetical scenario. Remember, this is hypothetical. So you're thinking, is this like a heroic mission? Like, do I need to train in martial arts and explosives? Are you going to send me down there to bring them to their destruction and their doom? And then God replies, no, you misunderstand. I want you to go find them Tell them that you forgive them, tell them what they're doing is wrong, and then tell them about Jesus. And you think, Lord, do you want me to die? <laughs> is, that, is that your plan for me? <laughs> and God says, no, I want you to love your enemies like I do. Now, this is a purely hypothetical situation, but it seems insane to us. I mean, it seems insane to me. Because everything we know about the world tells us that family and friends are for loving. Strangers, we know we're supposed to love them, but they're mostly to be avoided or to, you know, put up with. And then enemies are for hating and destroying. And, you know, don't believe me? Well, think about, you know, every movie ever. In Star Wars, is there ever a scene where Luke Skywalker hugs a stormtrooper? No. (laughs) It's like, we got to blow up the Death Star. We got to destroy them all. Video games, like in any video game, there's never a love button. You know, there's a jump on your enemy's head button, but there's never like a show kindness to your enemy button. Uh, In books, Lord of the Rings. Anyone? Any fans? Lord of the Rings? Yeah? So it's, you know, the whole movie is about taking a ring into a volcano and dropping it so the enemy explodes, very much like Star Wars. So the Bible is also very much a story about good versus evil. It's about good triumphing over evil. And so many times in the Bible, we see God punishing evil rightly and delivering justice to entire groups of people that are rebelling, which is his right to do because he's God and he's just, because justice is a part of God's character. So think back to my hypothetical situation. God says to you, go to ISIS and preach the gospel to them so that they can be saved. 
There's just, like, even myself saying that, there's this wrestling inside because it's like, that doesn't make sense to us. We think there are some people who deserve a chance to meet God, but there's others who just plain don't. There's some people who are too evil and too wicked to be saved. They don't deserve that chance. God would never ask his followers to do something like that, right? No, wrong. Look look at the Bible. Look at Jonah. See, Jonah is an amazing story, but Jonah suffers from what can be called the veggie tail syndrome, you know, because we have these kid versions. It's kind of like the story of Noah. Like, I was going over Noah with my high school group, and I showed them a picture of, like, the happy Noah and the boat with the rainbow, and I was like, do you guys remember that, like, underneath the happy rainbow boat, there's, like, corpses of everyone on the planet? Like, (laughs) Jonah's dark. (laughs) Noah is dark. And so with Jonah, what what do we think of? Like, what do we remember the most about Jonah? The the whale, right, absolutely. And that comes from the fun part of the story. The whale is an extremely awesome part of the story. It's this amazing, fantastical miracle that God does. I personally believe it's legit and real. It's not a metaphor. I believe that it's literal. And I think it's one of the most amazing parts in scripture where God does this big extravagant thing to get a message across to somebody. So I love that part of the story, but that's not all there is to it. Much more than a story about a big fish, Jonah is also the tale of a God inviting humans to partner with him on his mission to rescue the lost and the pride and bitterness that can get in the way of that mission. So let's look at Jonah chapter one, verse one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now stop right there. So we've got this opening part, it's so easy to just read past it because we read through scripture so fast sometimes we don't actually stop to look at the context and figure out what's going on. What God was asking Jonah to do was an incredibly frightening and difficult task. Why? Because Nineveh was quite literally the ISIS of Jonah's day. You might think, no way, no one can be as bad as those guys. Well, I would say perhaps maybe they were even worse. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at the time, and they had a reputation for violence, war, and debauchery. Listen to what the prophet Nahum had to say about Nineveh. Nahum says, woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels and galloping horses of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright swords and glittering spear. There is a multitude slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. So not exactly a glowing report of Nineveh from the prophet Nahum. The rulers of Nineveh had things to say about themselves. These are actual boasts made by the Assyrian rulers that were found on monuments that exist in museums to this day. So this is what Nineveh has to say about themselves. This is their reputation. This is one, different generals talking. One says, I cut off the head of my enemies and formed them into pillars. Another says, we flayed them alive in the city of Arbella and we spread their skin upon the city wall. One says, I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who had rebelled. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. Their corpses I formed into pillars. Another says, from sun to sun, I cut off their hands and their fingers. And from others, I cut off their noses, their ears and their fingers. Of many, I put out their eyes. They're known for beheading their enemies and shoving their heads onto poles lining the walls of their city. So these guys are intense. The final verse of Nahum's book emphasizes the violence of the Assyrians in the form of a rhetorical question. He says, who has not felt your endless cruelty? That's Nahum 3, 19. 
So do you see what Jonah's dealing with? Are you guys with me here? You see like what he's up against? What God is asking him to do is literally equal to God asking you to fly to the Middle East and preach to ISIS. The Bible tells us Jonah does not want to do this. And can we blame him? Would we want to do it? Would, would we be jumping to that opportunity? No, absolutely. So Jonah runs away. He gets on a boat and he sails as far away as he can. Jonah is afraid of the Ninevites, and I would be too. But he's not only afraid, Jonah is angry. If you study the book, you see Jonah truly, deeply hates the Ninevites. For their violence, for their wickedness, he despises them. More likely than not, people in Jonah's life, friends, family, neighbors, may have been killed or oppressed by the Ninevites. You know, I think back to when I was a little kid and I got called down from my parents um, to find out what was going on on September 11th. And I watched the video of the towers go down. I just remember going through these stages of grief and shock and then it turned to anger. And I thought, who could do such a thing? And, and I truly, for a time in my life, hated the people who did this senseless act of violence. And so Jonah is reacting to the call of God, but not with obedience. He's acting out of fear and hate. So what happens in the story? Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Does anyone here, like, raise your hand if you, you know the story of Jonah really, really well. Like, okay, you're, you're Bible church, you're Bible people. Okay, I'm just going to give the Reader's Digest just to refresh and bring us all up to speed. Jonah hears from God, go to preach to Nineveh. He runs away, gets on a boat. There's a storm. During the storm, the sailors are freaking out. They're asking Jonah what's up, and Jonah casually mentions, oh, you know, I worship Yahweh, the God who invented the ocean. Not a good idea to say when in the middle of a storm when they think they're going to die. So they're like, oh, if we throw you off the boat, then we'll be fine. So they chuck him off the boat, and a giant fish swallows him up. So in the belly of the fish, Jonah has a slight change of heart due to probably being slowly digested inside a giant fish. Uh, Uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Not fun to be swimming in stomach acid. So he goes through temporary repentance, and you can read in Jonah in, I think, chapter two, you've got Jonah's prayer, and he cries out to God, and he has this temporary repentance, and he says, all right, God, you are great. I will do what you want. Please get me out of here. So the fish vomits him up onto dry land. Jonah then goes to Nineveh and delivers the message to the people. Then he climbs up on a hill and waits. In Jonah chapter four, we find Jonah sitting on top of a hill and he's built himself a shelter, which means he's planning on being there for a while and he's waiting to see what happens to the city. Now, what do you think Jonah wants to happen to the city? Yeah, he's not, he's not hoping that it's going to be saved. He's looking for fire and brimstone. Like, he, he wants a meteor to come and smash this place, but it's not happening. It's, it's not happening. So Jonah, uh, if you read the story, you'll see he starts to get very angry. In fact, in chapter 4, there's a part where basically he says, and I'll summarize it, but he says, I wish I was dead. He looks at the city, he's like, I want to die. Like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened. I came all the way down here and they don't even get to explode? Like, I thought that's what I came for. I would rather die than see these people spared from what they deserve. Lord, why don't you smite them? Oh, I wish I was dead. Jonah's a bit of a drama queen. So Jonah is angry, not just that God has called him to preach to his enemies. Jonah is actually also mad at God because God has played a great and glorious trick on Jonah. And this is the meat of the message, and this is what gets me really excited. Um, Think back to when Jonah preached to Nineveh. Let's go back to chapter 3. So if you look at chapter 3, Jonah has been told, preach to Nineveh. God says, go tell Nineveh of their great wickedness. Back in chapter one, in chapter three, Jonah does with an eight-word sermon or a five-word sermon in the original Hebrew. If you look at Jonah chapter three, verse four, Jonah sa- it says, and then Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's his Bible study. Like that's, some of you guys would be like, that'd be great if we could get it just in five words. We come in, the guy says it, and then we leave and we'll go get tacos. That'd be great. Um, that's what Nineveh gets. It's, it's this eight-word sermon. It's, and it's very, it's very odd if you think about it because Jonah is called to preach against the wickedness of the city. And what does he not mention at all? Does he mention the wickedness of the city? No, he does not mention anything about the wickedness of the city. He says nothing about what they're doing wrong. Um, He has this just super vague, hey, 40 days and you will be overthrown. That's what he says. Um, Prophets in the Bible often when preaching to a city would tell them why the judgment was coming. Does he do that? No, no reasons given. And who does he not mention? God, yeah, he doesn't mention Yahweh, like the God who sent him, the one he represents. He's a really bad ambassador of God. So it's very strange, and it gets even better because, in my opinion, this is the best part of the book. And it's brilliant stuff, and it shows us that God's ultimate will always defeats our petty human sinful nature. Uh, Some of you, uh, what word, uh, when you look at it, what word does Jonah use to describe what happens to Nineveh? 40 days in Nineveh, Nineveh will be what? Overthrown. Any other translations? Destroyed. destroyed. You got destroyed. Any, anyone else? There's one more. Over, does anyone have overturned? Overturned? Okay, good. So those are the standard translations. Um, so I want to introduce you to some Greek, or not some Greek, some Hebrew geekiness. Uh, this is just great stuff. Does anyone like studying Hebrew words? Yeah? Okay. So we're going to put it up on the screen. It's over there. Okay. I don't know if you can see it, but um, the word that Jonah uses in the original Hebrew for what we look, think of as overturned or destroyed is the word hapak. Can you guys say it with me? Hapak. Okay, so great. Now, as you know, many words in the English language have basic meanings, but then they can be used differently, different nuances as you use them. Like, for instance, I could say, oh man, I totally like, murdered Scott on the basketball court. So that can mean either two things. One, we went on the basketball court and I defeated him because I was a better basketball player or I literally killed him on the basketball court and now they're going to make a documentary on Netflix about me. So, <laughs> you see, some words have different meanings as they're used. Um, the same word can be having good or bad meanings. Like, for instance, I can say, oh, I destroyed my car, which means I literally totaled it. I got an accident. It's negative, right? Negative connotation. Or I can say, I destroyed the world record for the most hot dogs eaten in 10 minutes. That's positive, right? Right? Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> it's not positive. <laughs> But it can be positive in, in some instances. So language works like this all the time, and it's the same with hapak. So we're going to look at three places in the scripture where the, word, where the Hebrew word hapak is used to convey very different meanings. So the basic meaning of hapak is just this. It's, it's turning something over. You with me? It's just this is, this is hapak, just turning, okay? So the prophet Hosea, in example number one, uses a metaphor when talking about the sinfulness of Israel. And he describes Israel as a piece of baked bread that has not been hapakt. It's not been turned over. In other words, it's been ruined because you need to bake both sides of the bread. And if one side gets overcooked and the other side is undercooked, then you throw it out because it's just, it's this clever metaphor from Hosea. So the basic meaning is turned over. So then you got meaning number two. If you take a city that is in rebellion like Sodom and Gomorrah, which is, you guys know, one of the most sinful, wicked cities in biblical history, the prophet says um, it'll be turned 
If the prophet says something like that will be turned over, it's not happy. It's a, it's a negative meaning. It's saying it'll be destroyed. In Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah says, the sin of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was hapakt in a moment without a hand to help. Is that describing a positive thing? No, it's saying Sodom was built and excellent and good, and then in an instant, turned over, destroyed. So that's meaning number two, clearly negative. Hapak can also mean in the third meaning, this is my favorite, something turned over from bad into good, something transformed. In Psalm 30, verse 11, says, God, you have hapakt, you have overturned, you have transformed my grief and mourning into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. So it's awesome. <laughs> it, can decide, it can describe something bad transformed into something good. Now here's where it gets brilliant. Because remember, as a prophet, Jonah is someone that God speaks through. So if you have a speaker and he's a prophet and God speaks through him, yes, the human messenger can influence, his flesh can come in and influence the delivery, but the message comes from God. So when Jonah goes to Nineveh, what meaning of hapak do you think he wanted to convey? Number what? Number two, destroy. So he's going around and he's shouting out his five-word sermon and he's clearly intending, 40 days in Nineveh will be habak, destroyed. That's what he's thinking. But which meaning did God intend and which meaning did God know would actually happen? Number three. It's, it's so good, right? It's awesome. It's so good. God is amazing. I just, I, I love that. Because, and it's, it's funny. I mean, Jonah doesn't think it's funny because he was tricked. Um, he's, he's ticked off. Because, I mean, think about it. God does not let Jonah get away with anything in this book. No, he says, preach your enemies. Jonah says, no, runs away. There's a storm thrown overboard, giant fish. So then Jonah says, all right, I'll play ball. But then he tries, uh, he tries p- prophetic sabotage. He tries to take God's message and like twist it so that, you know, he's thinking, I'm going to give them so little information. It's going to be so vague that they won't know what to do, they won't repent, and I can sit on a hill and eat my popcorn and watch them be destroyed. And God does not let him get away with it. It's, it's amazing. Jonah tried to use God's words against him, and Yahweh has the last laugh. He uses Jonah's words against him instead of the other way around. So of course Jonah's angry, and, and God used what Jonah meant for evil to be used for good, which is amazing. Now I'm going to show you a picture of a guy named Gordon Wilson. Anyone know about Gordon Wilson? Anybody? Okay. So Gordon Wilson is an Irishman who was passed away now in 1987 in Northern Ireland. Uh, who knows what was going on? Anybody? Northern Ireland, 1987. It's the, the war between the British and the Irish, Irish Republic. They're fighting over a piece of land. So you've got Irish soldiers who are resisting British occupation. British soldiers are coming into Ireland, and there's this big fight. Paul McCartney wrote a song, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. Anyone remember that? No? Okay. (laughs) I listen to a lot of old weird records I buy at thrift stores. So, Does anyone remember the name of the resistance movement? It was the IRA. Okay, the Irish Republic Army. So you've got Gordon Wilson, this old guy, Follower of Jesus doesn't support the IRA. He's an Irishman, but he doesn't resort to that kind of violence. Um, he runs this local drapery business, and during Remembrance Day, which is the British version of our Memorial Day, where they honor all of the fallen soldiers from Britain, Gordon went out with family to the town square, but he didn't know that the IRA had sent terrorists to plant pipe bombs throughout the city. 
So during the ceremony, bombs went off, buildings collapsed, walls caved in, and his family was hit. And he and his daughter were caught under the walls, trapped together under the rubble for hours. Finally, he was rescued, but unfortunately, his daughter did not survive. Two days later, after he was aware and fully functional, he could talk, and so the BBC came out and did an interview. And when the interview hit the news, it went viral as much as it could be without the internet back then. But um, there's a guy, you can go to the next slide, uh, William Uri recounts the story in his writings, captured it, he captured it this way. Not one who heard for Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towards the miserable justification of the bombers, speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. These were her exact last words to me, and they were the last words I heard her say. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray tonight and every night for the men that did this that God will forgive them. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. Now the story gets even more amazing because years later, to commemorate the bombing, Gordon invited members of the IRA to come and meet with him. And so the news crew shows up and because of his faith in Jesus, he declared he forgave his daughter's killers. And he humbly begged the IRA to cease using these violent tactics to get their agenda. This heart of courage made Gordon Wilson a legend in Irish politics, not because of his resolve to crush his enemies, but because his willingness to model Christ and forgive. Now, this is where the story gets even more interesting. One of the later presidents of the Irish Republic, Mary McAlessy, went and talked about the legacy Wilson left. You can throw up the next one. She says, Gordon's words shamed us all and caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we'd all become used to. They brought a stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into a place that had become so ugly we could barely bear to watch. But Gordon had his detractors, and unbelievably, he even received bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, people demanded. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killer? You can go to the next one. It was as if Gordon had spoken these words of forgiveness for the first time in human history, as if Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. One outspoken critic who was a Christian said to me about Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must be in shock, as if offering love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. So do you see, do you see what I'm talking about? In, in our society, it's crazy. It's interesting because we sing songs about grace and we name our daughters grace, and we think it's a beautiful thing, but there's actually the scandalous side of grace. Have you guys heard of that? In songs, we sing about the scandal of grace. When the wideness of God's mercy includes people that we hate, when it includes people we despise, people who've wronged us, people we think don't deserve it, it can be disturbing. It can be scandalous. And this is what the story is all about, the story of Jonah. It's such a relatable story. We all have people in our lives that the idea of God's grace reaching out to them is scandalous. There's people in your life who have hurt you, people who have wronged you, and you think, not them. Jesus is not for them. They're they're too far gone. They would never get saved anyway, and I hate them for what they did. There are enemies, foreign and near, and we look at them and we think we hate them. We don't wish anything good on them. We would not pray for them. 
It's unthinkable. There are people in our life who cause us pain, people in our schools, people in our work, in our offices. And we, we hear, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and our prayers tend to be more like, Lord, smite them. <laughs> Lord, destroy them. You know, Lord, can you just send down a thunderbolt? That's what we're praying for, not God, for that, that girl in the office who just has it out for me. Instead of praying, Lord, smite her, you, you, we, we need to be praying, God, change my heart. Make me a better friend to her. Give me patience for her. Help me to reach out. For that neighbor who's just so grumpy and so curmudgeonly and just, is just mean, we need to be praying, Lord, even though they annoy me so much, help me to reach out. For that family member who's hurt us and we just want to draw up the drawbridge around our heart and keep them away forever, we need to pray, God, reach them. Save them. If possible, use me. What would it be like if we obeyed the words of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? When was the last time we prayed for an enemy? Because we need to remember, church, we need to remember, no matter if you came in here tonight from off the streets and you've hated God your entire life, or if you were a kid who was a pastor's kid, born into a Christian family, born and raised in the Bible's whole life, Without Jesus' sacrifice, we would all be enemies of God. The Bible says we were enemies. We were enemies of God. It's so hard for us to think of that because we don't think of ourselves as that bad. There's always somebody worse, right? There's always someone to compare to, and I'm not as bad as them. But in God's eyes, we were enemies destined for destruction and darkness, and Jesus died for us. Jesus died for them. Think of the worst person you can think of. Jesus died for them. And if they don't know Jesus, man, we got to pray. We got to pray that God would bring them into the family. Being a follower of Christ, it's never about safety and security. You can learn that from Jonah. You know, he, that's what he wants, safety, security, and the ability to hate from a distance and not love close up. Jesus sends us into the war zone whether it's across the seas or whether it's into that war zone in your life, in your family, in your friend zone, in just your work, God sends you in not to fight with hate, not to fight out of fear, but to fight with the weapon of love, the only weapon that can disarm people and have them drop their weapons and open up their arms to the gospel. Let's go out this week, this month, this year, and let's love more than we hate. Let's stop praying for God to destroy people, and let's pray for Hapak. Let's pray for him to transform, right? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you. We just pray, God, that you, your spirit, would fall on this place, and just the simple truths of your word would burrow into our hearts. God, this is a message that I preach knowing full well I need to hear it. It's so hard to love sometimes, God. It's so hard. It's so hard, God, to not look at others and, and judge them for so many different reasons and think we're okay. It's, it's so hard. But God, you call us to lay down these weapons and pick up our cross, to pick up love and to fight with that weapon. God, help us to love our enemies this week. I pray that Calvary Vista would be a church that is so full of love that enemies become friends. Thank you, God. We love you. And we ask all this in your name.
Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.